Hello and welcome to Sustainapod, the youth-led podcast for anyone who's passionate about sustainability in Asia. My name is Paco. I'm the head of logistics here at Sustainapod and the host of this engineering series. Today, we have a special guest, Vicky Chan. Good afternoon, Vicky. Hi, good afternoon. Yeah, so Vicky is the founder of Avoid Obvious Architects. They have earned many awards over the years, including the 40 Under 40 Award for Research and Experiments in the Retail Sector in 2017, and the first prize in Metal in Construction 2022 competition by the Steel Institute of New York. So to start things off, Vicky, on your website, you list eight design ideas, sustainability, walkability, health, inclusiveness, resiliency, culture, vibrancy, and diversity. So what made you think about these eight in particular? And why are these eight so important in your design? Uh, we think uh, design is about connecting people to their community, people to nature, and people uh, you know, to their own good uh, and own well-being. So in order to actually tackle all this like fundamental idea, uh, we think we have to kind of break down the design into different principles and values. So the eight things that you, you mentioned are different aspects that a designer or a planner or an architect could actually tackle uh, individually, uh, but also collectively as a whole uh, to address different uh, issues. So, so those are the, the fundamental value and not, not to say that they're the only thing that we care about, but uh, in general, many design decisions that we make could really fall into these eight things. Uh, as long as they fit into what we believe, uh, we will actually go ahead and do those. Yeah, and these eight things are so important. Obviously, you mentioned sustainability as the first one. Um, we'll talk about walkability a bit later uh, with Walk DVRC, uh, but I want to first talk about KFARM. So could you briefly explain to our audience what KFARM is? Uh, yes, so in 2019, we, together with another NGO called Rough Sea, established a idea to do a smart farm in the middle of like Kennedy Town. So it's meant to be an urban farm that really combine multiple farming technology, including organics, hydroponics, and aquaponics. Many of these technology have existed individually, uh, but not together as a whole. And we're trying to use this smart farm idea to elevate the position of a farmer in Hong Kong. So at the end of the day, we hope students in Hong Kong will continue to look up farmers as a profession. Uh, so they're not just a ideal career choice, but it could also change the perception of really what what is the position of a farmer in our society, right? We really want to be, uh, we really want them to be seen as natural scientists. So, and so that was kind of the, the get-go for the project. Uh, yeah, and um, I didn't actually think of that point. That's a really good point. Uh, yeah, so I guess people do think of farming and like farmers as maybe not at the same level of perhaps the status of a scientist per se. So, yeah, I've never actually thought about that like, in that way. So it's really good that how you guys are trying to help these farmers elevate their game and make everyone know that they're also very important. 
Yeah, now, uh, you know, farming in Hong Kong is actually quite interesting. One of the another reason we wanted to do this like urban farming is to reduce carbon footprint, uh, but at the same time raise awareness in terms of the food that we consume every day. If you go to a really you know upscale supermarket, you could actually buy imported fruit or imported species like from Japan, U.S., Australia, or Europe, uh, or kind of European country. So the uh, carbon footprint that comes with this type of food are actually quite high, but yet for the taste, for the brand, or for the quality, people would spend the money for it. So what we wanted to do locally here is to tell people that some of this food is actually quite feasible to be done uh, here locally in Hong Kong. So we are actually curating a, a greenhouse uh, to allow people to grow some of this like local species. Uh, and then, uh, well, I should say, grow some of this international species, but do them locally in Hong Kong. So it really cut down on our carbon footprint. You see in the greenhouse, we do actually use air condition. We do also use electricity to actually maintain this plant. But if you calculate the amount of carbon that you spend from transporting something from all the way from Japan to here, what we are doing is actually even more low carbon. I'm not here to say that for all the future farming, this type of high technology usage will be the only way to do farming. But I'm just giving people a template, an option that if we continue to consume Japanese product per se, that is alternative uh, to uh, you know, what we needed to do. Absolutely. Many people nowadays talk about economies of scale and all those other types of things with shipping and how it seems less carbon footprint. But obviously, no matter how much you do, shipping is still has a carbon footprint. And sometimes producing things locally is better. Um, speaking of carbon footprint, that leads quite well into your other project, which is Walk DVRC. So in previous eras, a long, long time ago, cars and motorcycles were uh, focused on building efficiency first. Um, transporting people from one place to another. But yeah. now we know like the carbon footprint behind that. And we're, we're trying to switch back to walking or right? taking bikes and making more paths for people to walk around and socialize more greenery. So you've been very outspoken on this issue. You've said certain roads and other areas should be revamped. Why do you think it's so important for overpopulated places like Hong Kong to make a lot of progress to make a greener, less noisy, and a walkable place? Uh, I'm going to answer this question in two pieces, right? Uh, first of all, uh, I think Hong Kong is already very sustainable in terms of the amount of people who are using public transportation to go to work every day. It may be actually one of the highest in the world that 90% uh, of people here actually rely on public transportation. But yet, uh, the amount of infrastructure we place right now is very still focused on you know making the bus making the subway hyper efficient when we actually talking about like you know can we get to point a to point b in a very pleasant healthy way many times you're very much like walking next to a highway it appeared to be very efficient but yet it was just quite toxic quite unhealthy and simply just like unpleasant to walk next to a highway to get to your subway station. So 
we thought as a world-class city like Hong Kong, uh, it cannot be the only answer to just like rely everything on efficiency. We have to be thinking about well-being. We have to be thinking about reducing some of this traffic. We have to be thinking about connecting people to places, connecting people to parks. So uh, all the sidewalk that we put today are really the answer to some of this like question we had, right? Finding a more pleasant way to connect people, to be able to walk for all types of people, to be able to make the city more pet friendly, wheelchair friendly, children friendly, really kind of the uh, essential way to make our downtown area to be more vibrant, more successful. You know, little things actually all matters. For instance, there's not a single bench right now in, in the area that we focus on, on along DVLC. There's not a single tree right now. Like it, it sounds a little odd to you to actually point out to you that our central CBD actually don't have a single bench, but they don't actually. Uh, so it, it's actually a little funny to, to see how we are very upscale in terms of our infrastructure, but yet some fundamental need to serve our elderly, to serve someone who really wanted to actually just like kind of sit down as they walk. Uh, that, that's not something that we are quite able to cater yet. So I think we have room to improve and I believe our project are trying to connect the dots. Uh, we can make all the changes are feasible. I think by just like pushing our agenda behind walkability, our city will become a bit more healthy, a bit more sustainable. Yeah, and uh, that's a very good point you made at the end. I want to focus on that first because you talked about feasibility. And I think um, I'm not really pointing out anyone in particular, but I think sometimes people have the tendency to say, oh, we can do this and this and this, and then we can do this. But it might not exactly be feasible and it might not be the best way to make less carbon footprint. And what you guys are doing is making sure we're taking small steps but gradual steps. You made a very good point in the beginning. I think I take for granted how good Hong Kong's uh, transportation system is. And um, the fact that a lot of other countries rely on private cars more than public transport, I think that's that's one of the good things about Hong Kong. But of course, every city can make more steadfast progress to building a better and more safe city. So for people who are just wondering, basically we're recording this in the middle of the summer, I think in every country, it's very hot. It's very hot. Of course, there are many innovations for how architects are making indoors less hot for customers and everything. For example, I think it's like called a water curtain um, and then there's yeah. double glaze windows. And there are many ideas out there that people are trying to use, but what do you think architects need to do in the coming years to how? Yeah. Yeah. Improve. I'm, I'm going to actually give you two parts of the answer. Part one is actually behavior change. I'm not going to talk about architecture first. I'm going to actually talk about fashion design first. Uh, you see me right now in t-shirt. This is actually very intentional. If we wanted to actually have less consumption on AC, the way we dress, the way we go to work, all actually part of the same idea. When we actually talk about walkable central, Believe it or not, a lot of people support it, but they said, if I have to be in my professional outfit, I don't want it to walk. I want to take my taxi. The answer to that is actually very simple, right? Changing the dress code so that it's actually allowable 
is feasible to be able to present yourself professionally at work. And yet we could allow people to actually turn off the AC, maybe not all day long, but at least like some time. It doesn't have to be every single day. It could be, say, a casual Friday, right? So with like behavior change like that, we could actually change a lot of like carbon impact, uh, specifically related to hot climate or hot night or hot work day. So that was a, a one solution uh, that could actually have a huge impact. And we are champion uh, behind that. Uh, for Walk DVLC, we are hosting a fashion design competition right now. So uh, it, it sounds a little funny that that urban designer architect are doing fashion, but I am just saying that behavior change is really like part of the same agenda. Uh, second part uh, to your question, we have to be looking at all the building. Uh, we're building a lot of green building right now, way too many green, green building, but yet we are not focusing enough on revitalizing old buildings that weren't efficient. Opportunity is huge. Doesn't matter how many new net zero building you're building, 70% of the building we have in the city are still very inefficient. We're burning way too much like energy on something that are not necessary. So for architect, I think the market opportunity is huge. We just have to upgrade 70% of the city's infrastructure so that they are efficient up to the current code, up to current energy standard. Yeah, and that, that makes a, a lot of sense. I was actually reading an article the other week about this and how architects and structural engineers want to uh, decarbonize the city. And the main way to do that is to not make more, but to build on what we already have. So that's exactly what you said. Building on the old buildings that we already have, why can't we make those better? Why are we trying to make something new that might bring actually larger people, right? Why don't we just go build on the things that we have already? And to your fashion point, I think that's a really good point that everyone needs to look forward to because um, there are many people who are like, oh, we want the old way. We, we want to go back to how this was in 1995 or, or stuff like that. But times have changed and the temperature is not going to go down. We know that for sure. So why can't we adapt to the new situation? Why are we trying to go backwards? Why can't we make it better for the future? Yeah, I, even I didn't think about that. I want to kind of switch topics now, though. I'm going to ask some questions about yourself. So for everyone, you earned your bachelor's in architecture at the Pratt Institute. I think that's what it's called, the Pratt yeah. Institute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. what, what were some of the things that you learned there? Oh, uh, in architecture school, uh, we learned a lot about critical thinking that uh, I thought it was actually uh, very useful uh, up to... Uh, my career right now, uh, we we learn to actually continue to criticize ourselves, continue to criticize our idea until we get to the bare bone of what the problem is, so that we could actually tackle the problem as they are without making a decorative item that weren't actually necessary. So you know, throughout my career, uh, by building the K farm, by working on Walk DVLC. We continue to criticize ourselves until we get to the source of the problem. And obviously, in a world like today, 
you know, so many problems, like just like, you know, getting people to walk, like the fashion could be one problem, the distance could be one problem, time to go home is another problem, inconvenience that people perceive is other problem. Not to say that we will be able to resolve 100% of all the problems by giving them a solution, because, you know, our will is just not perfect. Uh, we can't just please 100% of the, the people. But my critical thinking uh, helped me to really understand how to decipher and filter out some of the issues and requests until we get to the bottom of it. And, and, and that, that is very important for an architect to, to is a skill we have to have. And also, uh, it's also a, a talent to be able to filter out some of this uh, information. Yeah, and I was actually kind of reading about this stuff today. So is, is the process, I'm not really sure the same for the architects, but I've read for engineers, it's asking why. So you have the basic problem, but then you go, why, 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 why? And then you get to the heart of the problem. Then you can start uh, building it from there. So is it the same for architects? Do you start from going, why? Yeah, no, funny enough, you mentioned the why's. We, we do play the games like, quite often. We just actually play this game with a lot of like regular people as well. We ask people, how do you perceive a specific topic? When they give an answer, we keep on asking them why, why do you think of this? Uh, after they get that answer, we repeated the same question. Uh, why, why do you think that element contributed to the earlier answer? So we try to dig deeper and deeper until we reveal the true identity of what the problem is. Uh, for an architect, it could also be a bit more complicated than just asking the same question multiple times because it has like environmental data that we have to care and look up. We have to research about like social context. We have to research real uh, cost, time, uh, all these like uh, factors are a part of the decision-making that affected the, the, the problem because it, it is not an easy uh, network of problem. It, it could be a, a complexity of uh, networks. We spend a lot of time actually researching the answer until we make a decision. So we understand the environmental data to, to make you know, specific recommendation whether this specific project wanted to have solar panel or not. It's not even a simple answer to give to all client or all project because it, if they have a lot of cloud, it's not a good thing, solar panel uh, in that city. So, you know, things like that. It, it, there's not a simple answer sometimes to, to solve a problem. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't know if we mentioned this at the beginning, but from your designs, you've designed places from all across the world. And so I'm assuming there's a lot of research going into different places and understanding the land types and everything for each individual city. Uh, yeah, sometimes like uh, we try to keep the team very diverse. We have people who were like from different like religion, culture, and background. So as we try to tackle project in Morocco, so you know they would give us like specific like taboo in that religion of what not to do, so that we won't appear too you know dumb yeah. <laughs> to do something that was against uh, their local religion. And then when we work on project in Canada, we, you know, we have Canadian designer who would advise on the type of lifestyle the Canadian desired uh, so that you know, we, you know, we could be, uh, you know, be efficient. Uh, many of the work that we do is very family oriented, very related to nature. So being able to work with someone locals who can advise us what type of family style that, that the people are wanting to have are uh, important, for instance, some projects are okay to say, you know, some country went out, are okay to have like marijuana. 
uh, it's not so much a universal in Asian city right now. So, but when we have project like that, we have to understand, you know, how family over there are, are dealing with like marijuana and then how do, but when I, I'm not trying to advocate like drug, right? But, yeah, but yeah. there are facilities that we're building right now uh, that really require us to plant specific like uh, item, including marijuana. So, so we have like certain need to understand the local regulation and also how people perceive that type of design. So it, it, it is quite fun. And every case, we just have to research, research and try to talk to as many people as we can who are actually from the local region. Yeah, and that makes complete sense because obviously different people have different needs and different wants. And it makes sense that when you research them, you want to appeal to that specific audience. Let's get back to you for a second. And you run six companies, if I'm not wrong. Six companies... I'm only part of two projects, this being one of them, and another one that I'll be plugging in a bit. But sometimes even they overwhelm me. So I can't imagine how you can run six companies. So how is that like? And what went through? Uh, we have a team of people who are helping us. When we run institute in charge of like architects, uh, we, we have like a team of like 30 people who, who take care of different things. So my position, uh, we were to make sure that the, the overall direction are going ahead and going in the right direction. For other NGOs, are uh, similar case. We can't do everything all at once. We have like committees to who take care of like monies, to take care of the project, to take care of like communications. Uh, similarly, for all the NGO uh, project that we have, there's always a, a committee who who are behind it. I cannot credit everything all uh, to myself. Uh, I I do I, and I did uh, funded some of the firm myself. But uh, I also did inherit some of the network that I had. So some of the network, it was not all just for me. It was not something that I inherited. Uh, and they, uh, all the founders from the, you know, this institute just happy that someone will, will try to contribute. Uh, many of this NGO, I was doing it as a volunteer. So I don't get paid. So with that as a statement, all the committee are also working as a volunteer. So everyone is trying to put in a bit of the time and, and as you get to do more and more stuff, uh, many of this actually overlap because from my teaching uh, NGO to my walkability NGO, to my NGO that promote community sport, there are actually many factors that really overlap. So they get easier as you get to work on more and more projects because you know there are certain things that you know, oh yes, that, that's the way to do it. I don't have to spend time trying to find the right way because I've done it like three or four times already. Yeah. That's very important. Obviously having a great team behind you, that's always important in uh, projects like these. And like you said, that was actually one of the questions I was going to ask. This is going to be the final question because I see we're running out of time. What is one piece of advice that you would give to students who are trying to join an NGO? Because as you said, like NGOs, they're voluntary. I'm assuming you don't get a continuous source of income from that. So how would you, um, what advice do you have for students who are also trying to pursue an NGO, but also get sustainable? Yeah, well, there are two, two pieces of advice and there are two, two types of like position, right? Like if you join the NGO as an employee, which they do pay people, that, that's one way to actually get paid at the same time do the things that you, people love to do. If you wanted to join as like the director, make decision, and you you have to be prepared not to get paid, but obviously <laughs> someone have to fund 
income elsewhere. And for me, I, I work as an architect, so I make money as an architect, but uh, you know, help other organizations as a free volunteer. The advice I would get to this two stream is that uh, actually it's the same advice. Uh, you really have to love the cost behind the NGO so much that you're willing to spend time on it. If people are just in it for the name, then I would say just, just don't do it because like uh, you're not going to last very long and you're not going to get the credit that you think you will get. Once you love the cost and the reason behind why you're wanting to spend your time in that specific like uh, institute, I think the reward will be tremendous. I'm going to talk about some of the reward um, here openly because th this is like, you know, there's no secret. After I joined some of this NGO, I'm able to unlock certain door. I'm able to see certain network that I don't normally see as a young, relatively young architect. I'm not as young as you guys are, but as a relatively young architect, it, many doors are able to be open because I was able to offer certain position that the, you know, other people don't have. So the, the networking, the opportunity to be able to meet people actually helped me in my professional career. Uh, not to say that they would bring me direct income, uh, but you know, you just have to look at it as a certain access, right? Being able to tap into a network is a type of income that you can quantify by dollar amount. That was actually the reason why I joined this podcast, because the amount of networking that you can make from being an NGO and finding people who are also passionate in what you love it's it's it means the world to be able to talk to people who are in the same field as you and so thank you vicky for sharing all your insights today you can find more about avoid obvious architects at um, aoarchitect.us slash that is aoarchitect.us slash um before we end vicky do you have anything you, you want to plug as well well thank you for inviting me uh i'd love to talk to you know young audience like you so it, i think it's very fruitful also uh, to get the opportunity to connect with you absolutely if you're interested in joining the engineering sector i started short reads which is all about how engineering is all around us you can follow the project on instagram at short reads that's s-h-o-r-t-r-e-e-d-s that's s-h-o-r-t-r-e-e-d-s this is sustainable thank you for listening